Lord, I do thank you for your word and the wisdom that it always gives us. And Lord, there are so many nuggets in that chapter of Proverbs. I pray that we would take them. And in this new year, Lord, help us to live wise each day, preparing for your coming and just loving you by loving our neighbors around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 1. You know what? I forgot to pray for one thing I intended to pray for. Lord, I do also pray for Pastor Bill, that you would be with him and for all others who are sick, uh, very sick in the church, that your hand would be on them, your healing hand. You are the great physician, Lord. Lord, just pray that you would get them through it, and Lord, that their strength would always be with you and that they're always leaning on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Second Timothy, actually, my children's jokes. Elias wanted to recommend two books to you. The first is How to Get Rich by Robin A. Bank. The second book he'd like to recommend is Around the World by Ben There, co-authored by Don That. And Christian would like to recommend Falling Off a Cliff by Eileen Dover. Okay, uh, Second Timothy. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So, introduction to Second Timothy. When we look at the book of Acts, I'm going to jump all the way back to the last chapter. We see Paul under guard in his own rented house. He's under house arrest. And he's there for two whole years. He was given liberty at this time. His friends were able to visit him. And he used this time for furthering the gospel. People would come to him. He'd answer their questions. And we got one picture of kind of what that looked like in Acts 28, where Jews would come. They'd talk to him. They'd go, we'll come back and hear you again on this. Or they'd go, no, you're kind of off your rocker. And they wouldn't come back. So we got two pictures of kind of what it was like for those two years. Now, it was during this time that he wrote what's known as the prison epistles or prison letters. And they were Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, as well as Philemon. <clears throat> now, after this two-year stint, he was released by Nero. Nero was the one he appealed to. This was before he was off his rocker. And once he was released, he had a few more years where he went on another missionary journey, and he was preaching the gospel until he was rearrested by Nero. Now, in this second imprisonment, this is when 2 Timothy was written. Now, 1 Timothy was written in between those imprisonments. But this book was written somewhere in the realm of 64 to 66 AD. And as we read the letter, what you're going to see is the final urgency in his words. He knows that he's close to being executed. When you read uh, the prison epistles, he had the sense that God was going to have him released so that he could go and continue to minister. In this one, he has the sense that God is saying, you know what, this is the last one. This is your time. And so Paul has an urgency to the letter. He's trying to encourage Timothy, who is his close protege, probably the closest person he had to him. It was someone who had uh, brought to the faith and then brought on his uh, second missionary journey with him. But when you read it, there's no regret in his letter. He has no qualms about anything that he's done. He's happy that he's given everything for the gospel and that he's pressed forward into the ministry that God gave him. 
Now, this letter is also considered one of three pastoral epistles, the other two being 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, Timothy, (coughs) as I said, very close friend of Paul. Uh, He was saved on Paul's first missionary journey to the city of Lystra. Lystra was the city where Paul and Barnabas went to the city, and they were considered gods. They thought they were Hermes and Zeus. Paul was considered Hermes because he was the one who talked the most, and Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And they started to bring a bull out to sacrifice, and they said, no, no, brothers, don't do that. We're men just like you are. And then eventually they, they were sort of lynched and kicked out of Lystra, as they were a lot of the cities they witnessed in. But during Paul's second missionary journey, when he decided to go back through there, he brought Timothy with him. Now, Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Um, and from that point, when Paul took him, they began basically what was Timothy's discipleship in the faith. And again, this is Paul living out what Jesus said to do, making disciples of all nations. Paul was a great evangelist. He made many disciples in the churches that he went to, but there weren't as many people that he had with him that he said had the same heart as him for the flock of God, and Timothy was that person. So he writes two letters to Timothy. Both of them are encouraging him, but at the same time, there's minor rebukes in there saying, Come on, son in the faith, you know this. You know better. You can do this. I want to encourage you and press you forward. They stayed together uh, during Paul's first imprisonment, eventually going, Timothy eventually going to Philippi after Paul's release. After that, uh, we see in 1 Timothy that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to kind of encourage the work there and give that church some more order. If Ephesus had been a church that Paul had spent a lot of time in, but at the same time, they still needed guidance, and he thought Timothy was the person for that job. Now, a few other things we know about Timothy for sure. Timothy, from all that we see written about him, apparently was frequently sick. He was a, a sickly person. He was apparently also timid. He was shy, and he was obviously young. Um, and again, like I said, he was Paul's closest companion. He was a son in the faith. So with that... We'll delve into verse 1. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The first thing you notice about this is Paul knew who he was. He knew what ministry he was called to. When he first got saved on the road to Tarsus, he thought his ministry was to destroy the church. He thought that was for sure what he was called to do because these people were violating Jewish law. They were following this supposedly risen savior, and he was zealous for the Jewish law. He, he was, what he would say was zealous without knowledge. Once he got saved, though, he didn't eventually, he didn't immediately jump into the ministry. He did do a few things. But it actually took about eight to ten years before he actually got into his missionary service. But he knew what he was called to do. He was an apostle. He was sent out. That's what apostle means. Apostello means sent out one. (coughs) Excuse me. And because he knew what his ministry was, he was able to go full bore into it. Now, when you know what your mission is, when a special ops team knows what their mission is. 
they're expecting, and I have a couple friends who were in special ops, and they would tell me things about how they're trained and everything. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and when you go into a mission, you're expecting something to go wrong. Uh, there was a movie out, I forget what it was called, it was about, oh, Lone, it's called Lone Survivor. It's about a SEAL team, and there was one survivor. And in the movie, they depict them going, okay, what are we going to do? Our only exit was blocked. What are we planning? Well, one of my friends who's special forces says, no, they have like five different escape routes. They have five different options. They have all these, and he listed a bunch of different things. But they, there are pitfalls that they expect. Paul knew what his mission was. He knew he was going to expect pitfalls. But when you know you're going to expect a pitfall, that doesn't deter you. That just looks helps you to look through to the ultimate point of the mission. And that's what Paul would do. He knew what his calling was. <coughs> I'm getting a drink of water. Excuse me. So even though there are pitfalls along the way, he was confident that he could get through them. He wasn't discouraged by it. And even though there's obstacles, all of us have some specific purpose, some specific mission. We can get through those obstacles, those pitfalls. There's going to be sicknesses sometimes. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. There are all sorts of things that will happen. But we can get through them when we know what our purpose is. Now, how do you know what your purpose is, what your mission is? Paul knew he was called to be an apostle. (coughs) And really the only thing I can tell you is, is that you need to pray about it. And then once you pray about it and God gives you an answer... You write it down. Now in Habakkuk 2.2 it says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. So once you've prayed about it, once you've written it down, carry it in your pocket and post it on your wall. We have several verses in our kitchen typed out and they're posted, <coughs> posted on the cupboards. And one of them is um, the one I've memorized that I can't remember. Uh, it's First Peter, I want to say 2.17. And it's not our ultimate mission statement, but it's the mission of how we treat everybody. And it says, I just had it again and I lost it. It says, love the brotherhood. No, what is it? Christian, what is it? Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So when we look at that and we've treated somebody poorly or talked about somebody poorly, we go, no, we need to go back to what our mission is as far as how we treat people. So you keep those things written down. There was one thing, and I I think I've mentioned this before in the past, is I thought for sure out of high school I was going to join the military. There were a couple different, I thought first it was the Marines and then it was the Army, and it was kind of blocked by God on both accounts because it just, the door closed. It wasn't the right thing. But the verse that got me through that kind of disappointment was in 2 Timothy, actually, verse chapter 2. It says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's one of my favorite verses, and that's kind of the verse that, that's how I, that's how I see myself. Uh, I'm not actual military, but I am in God's military. <coughs> so, 
Whenever I go through something difficult or something doesn't go my way, I go, okay, well, it's a hardship I have to endure. I'm a soldier for Christ. He has me on different missions. I kind of go where he directs, but I expect the hardship, but I push through it because I know it's what his plan is. So that's, for me, that's one of my, my verses. But everybody has some verse that God hits them with, and that's the verse that they need to carry around and go, okay, God said this, God gave this to me, I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to keep trudging forward no matter the pitfall. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm coughing a lot more than I expected. Now, my children have asked me this question also. I've told them, you know, God's got a purpose for you, God's got some ideal that he's going to set up for you, and they're young, and they're like, well, but what is the purpose God has for me? I don't know what it is. And I said, well, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the grand scheme is. And then I told them, I know what he wants you to do right now, though, because he says it. So I take them all the way to Exodus 20. You know what the fifth commandment is? It says, honor your father and mother. I said, that's God's will for your life. That's God's purpose. And they go, no, that's okay, I know that, but I want something else. I said, and I tell them, I said, just as when someone is a young Christian, God gives them only things they can digest, he slowly teaches them and raises them up. So as you're young, you listen and you grow and you become diligent and more things become visible and apparent as to what God wants you to do. And that's the one verse I always give them. I said, but I said, God is going to, the more you are faithful to that verse, there are things that God will reveal to you. There are things... And so, Mariah has in her mind her future already, which I'm sure that doesn't surprise anybody. And I think I've shared this before, too. She believes she's going to run a water park with her own bakery attached. Cupcake bakery. That may be the case. And so, if that is the case, we kind of encourage her with that, and she bakes all the time. And she's even got a design for her water park. But if that's the case, then God will open the door for her and she'll use that for God's glory in whatever way possible. And so, just like with my children, God has some mission, some thing, some vision he wants you to have and, and to push forward with. And it doesn't have to be some grandiose thing where you start a mega church or anything like that. Those things don't matter. It's all the little parts that everybody plays together that makes the big picture so beautiful. It's not the one stroke. It's all those strokes that got put together. And I read somewhere that the Mona Lisa took five years to make or something like that because he kept going back and adding to it and apparently it's some fantastic piece I don't think it's very fantastic but apparently it's a fantastic piece of art and the way it's done but what makes that picture so beautiful to everybody is how much he put into it and all the different techniques and things and that's the same thing with the picture of Christianity. We all have our part to play where God is moving everything together into some great portrait. And that ends up with the salvation of souls. Now, <clears throat> Paul ends verse 1 with the phrase, in keeping with the promise of life. And I think that's significant because... Paul was at death's door at that point, physically. Yet, it didn't matter to him because he knew he was alive in Christ. For us, this is just passing through. 
And Paul knew it was just passing through. He knew he was going to be with Christ for eternity. So even though he was at death's door physically, because of the promise of life he had in Christ, he was encouraged, and he was using that as an encouragement for Timothy as well. Verses 2 through 5. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, a couple things in there, just real quick. Just as Paul could say when he was a zealous Pharisee, he says, I've kept the law perfectly. And in Philippians, he said, I kept it perfectly, but it really meant nothing. But he did his very best to make sure he kept his conscience clear when he became a Christian. He made sure he was focused. He kept everything that was going to distract him from Christ away. And then he says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. And pray without ceasing. He was praying without ceasing. He's setting the example of, of what he's wrote many times over. And when he says, recalling your tears, I have a feeling this is when Paul was pulled to prison the second time. And Timothy may have been there. Don't really know when it happened. But he longed to see him because Timothy, again, was a son in the faith. Someone who he could see a fulfillment of the years that he had put into this person. And when you disciple somebody and they grow up in the faith and they become that person in Christ that you're proud of, that's what Paul was thinking of. Now, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And this is where you never underestimate the impact of parents and grandparents in the life of a child. Because it doesn't matter necessarily the outside influences. They're always going to be there. But the parent and the grandparents who set the example for following the faith. When I get up in the morning, well, when I get up in the morning on my day off, I usually sit at the dining table and I read my Bible. And I usually do devotions. And sometimes I finish before the kids get up. Other times they get up. And usually, without me saying anything, they'll simply grab their Bible and come sit next to me. And they'll do it too. And this doesn't always happen, but it happens a lot. And so they see that example, and that's the same example, not just parents, but grandparents or even uncles and aunts. All those things, all those examples make, make a difference. It's not just doing what I say, it's me acting out what I'm saying that makes the difference. And I believe that's what happened with Timothy. His at least grandmother and mother were saved. Whether his, mother, his dad was or not, we don't know but it was their impact that brought him to the faith. Verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The fan into flame here is a Greek word, anazapurio, which means to stir up, which can either mean to kindle afresh or to keep in full flame. Now in this context, I believe it means keep into full flame. 
Timothy hadn't lost his fire, but Paul wanted him to keep it actively lit. He wanted him to stoke it with the poker. He wanted the gift that he had to be continually and purposely kept full flame. Now, one commentator said, God does not work his gifts through us as if we're robots. Even when he gives a man or a woman gifts, he leaves an element that needs the cooperation of their will, of their desire and drive to fulfill the purpose of his gifts. So even though God gives us gifts, he doesn't make us automatically use them as if we're robots. We have to have our own will put into it. We have to say, Lord, okay, you've given me this. I want to actively use it now. And we've got to do it. We've got to push forward. And Paul is encouraging Timothy, who's a pastor, look, I know you know this, but let me remind you. I want you to keep the fire fully flamed. I want you to be (coughs) productive and use the gift God's given you. So because of the faith that lives in us, we keep fanning that flame that God's given us. So if you're a teacher and you're not teaching, you're not fanning the flame that God has given you. If you have the gift of helps and you're not helping, you're not fanning the flame that God has given you. If you're not actively putting into practice what God has called you to do, you're not fanning the flame. That's what we all have to do. (coughs) And like I said, God gives us all gifts, but like muscles, gifts that are not used get atrophied. And an atrophied muscle is a weak muscle. I was going to do an Arnold impression here, but I don't think my voice is going to let me. But God wants you to be pumped up in your ministry physically, not muscle-wise, but ministry-wise pumped up. (coughs) 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 But we can't let God, I'm sorry, we can't wait for God to passively use us. We have to actively pursue it. God will work through us, use us to help others, but he wants us to step forward. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 7. For the Spirit of God, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This is one of the places we get the impression that Timothy was a timid person. We get the impression that though he was probably a loving individual, he had a heart for the flock of God, as Paul said, that he might have been someone who hated confrontation. And honestly, that's something I think a lot of us can relate to. We all face situations where we feel timid and afraid. For some, that can be speaking in front of others. Uh, It makes them fearful. Um, Others are just afraid of confrontation. Others are afraid of looking foolish. We're all afraid of looking foolish. No one likes to look dumb. So when someone asks us a question that maybe we can't answer, we feel maybe inadequate, but we're afraid. We're not always going to have all the answers. Or maybe we're afraid of the rejection. But we all have a fear of something. I'm going to tell you what I fear. I fear public speaking. Seriously. Uh, Every time I come up, whether I read a verse or I'm teaching, I'm 
I'm always nervous. Um, but I can't actively fan the flame if I'm not obedient to do what I'm told. I'm also afraid of talking to just people in general sometimes because honestly, I don't know what to say. Uh, I'm in the flesh a loner. I don't feel the need to talk a lot. And so I have a hard time. So when Bill says, go say hi to your neighbor, I'm like, okay, well, I can say hi. And even that's nerve-wracking sometimes. Even though I know you, it can be fearful. But those are things that I'm trying to overcome. And I know a lot of people share similar things to that. I know a lot of people go, I don't like when they do that because I don't want to shake anybody's hand. You don't know. I just don't want to shake anybody's hand. Anyway, and the last fear is... I fear not having the answer when someone asks me a question. And so even though I'm constantly trying to study apologetics and, and the Bible to try to have answers for people, I'm always afraid there's going to be that one person who asks a question that I'm like, oh, man, I should have stayed up later to read the answer to that. Or I'm always afraid of that. But I can't let all these fears keep me from doing what God's purpose is for me. And I have learned that if I don't have the answer, that I say, you know what, that's a good question. Let me look, look, look up that, look that up. And so <clears throat> you're going to have fears, but God will help you overcome them. He helps me overcome them. And we should never let that fear hold us back. Now, Paul wanted to develop in Timothy a boldness to lead and protect the flock. He was already a gifted teacher. He was already an evangelist. But he wanted him to have boldness to confront those who were maybe errant in the truth or were turning people aside. And you find that in between 1st and 2nd Timothy, one commentator said there's 25 different places in those two books. There's 10 chapters in those two books. 25 different places where Paul encouraged Timothy to be bold and to not shy away from confrontation. (coughs) To stand up where he needed to stand up. And this was something that Timothy needed to hear. Now, here's homework for you. Read 1st and 2nd Timothy this week and find those verses and find encouragement for yourself to be bold in place of the fear that sometimes walks with us. And that will help you in your walk with God as well. Now, when it comes to fear or timidity, the first thing we need to recognize is it's obviously not from God. Uh, It could be from personality, which in my case is many cases personality. I'm a shy person. There are other places where it could be just a weakness in someone's flesh, or perhaps it's a demonic attack. But no matter what the fear is, the fear is never from God. The second thing we need to recognize and understand is what God has given us, and that's of his spirit. Now, what does the spirit of God do? We listed three things here. One is it gives us power. And we're told in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And that's what the power is for. It's not for our own glory. It's not for our own gain, but it's to be power or I'm sorry, it's to be witnesses for Christ. The second thing 
is love. Now, this tells us a lot about the power that he has given us. Now, a lot of people think of power, the world does, in terms of who I can control. How can I get people to control and do what I want them to do? But that's never been God's definition. Jesus set the example for ultimate power when in John 13, on the night before he was to go to the cross, it says he knew God had given all things into his hands. So the Father gave all things into his hands. And what did he choose to do? He chose to get down and serve and wash the disciples' feet. And that's what ultimate power does. That's what it loves. It serves. He humbly washed his disciples' feet. And if the God of the universe is willing to do that, how much more should we? Now, the last thing, it says it gives us self-discipline or it gives us a sound mind. (coughs) The ancient Greek word here has the idea of a calm, self-controlled mind, which is in contrast to what panic or confusion might be. And I know we have all done had that because a lot of times people might ask us a question or all of a sudden somebody goes, you're a Christian, aren't you? And the first thing in your head goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. Gosh, I hope he doesn't ask me anything. I don't know. Because that's what goes through my mind. And I know I'm not the only one. But it's, it's that sound mind. That's what his spirit gives us to where we don't have to know everything, but we can go, okay, Lord, I've studied what I can study. I've read what I can read of your word. Let your spirit use me in whatever manner possible. And that's what having a sound mind is. Don't have to be panicked. You can just go, okay, well, Lord, this is the chance you've given me, the opportunity to witness. What is it that I need to say? Even if you can't answer the question, you can still be the calm, controlled, self-disciplined, loving witness that you need to be. Now, It does sound easier when I say it up here than actually put it into practice. But part of our faith and trusting trusting in God is to just do what he says regardless of how it feels and not shying away from situations. Now, I know that means we're going to fall. That means we're going to fail. And apart from Christ, all of us have. All 12 apostles did. Even Paul wasn't perfect. But... When I think of failure and not giving up in the face of fear, there's actually two different movies I think of. Now, one of those, don't laugh, is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I'll tell you why. If you remember at the beginning of the movie, he's trying to rescue the cross of Coronado from treasure hunters. But he didn't succeed. He failed. But the guy told him, the guy who was chasing him said, you lost today, kid, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. And then he gave him his trademark fedora. But none of us likes loss and failure. So what that means is, okay, so we lost. So we don't quit. We just get back up and keep going. And in the movie, obviously, he got the cross Coronado 30 years later or something like that. But We don't push on in our own strength when we fail. We push on in the strength that God has provided in his spirit. Now, the second movie, (coughs) and I only remember one scene for the movie, so it's it's called Gattaca. And again, I don't remember the point of the movie. I only remember one scene. 
There were two sons. One was made the old-fashioned human way, so he was flawed. The other was genetically engineered with all the best traits of his parents, so he was technically supposed to be perfect. Now, the first son, the made in the original way, always lost in swimming contests with his younger, genetically superior brother. They would go out to the ocean, they'd go to the beach, and they'd swim as far as they could, and whoever was able to swim the farthest and then make it back was the winner, and he always lost. But that changed. Well, he thought he wasn't good enough because of how everything happened, how his brother was made. But that changed when he decided he wasn't going to let fear hold him back because what was holding him back was, well, I can't keep going because I know I might drown. I don't want to get stuck out there. So he didn't let fear hold him back. What he did was he kept swimming no matter what. He didn't save anything for the return, for the return swim. He put it all on the line no matter what. And in the movie, you see him keep swimming. And his superior brother goes, you're crazy, you can't keep going, just stop what you're doing, just come back with me now. And he kept swimming, and he kept swimming. And he made it back, obviously, because otherwise it'd be a short movie. <laughs> but the point was, again, he put it all on the line. He didn't hold back. And as Christians, we need to put it all on the line, not because of our own power, but because of the power that resides in us again through the Holy Spirit. So because we have the Spirit of God, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear failure. We don't need to fear anything, really. We don't need to fear failure. We need to lay it all on the line and give it everything. And if we do fail, that doesn't mean we have to like it. Just get up and go again. And there's always going to be some constructive criticism, maybe some not so constructive that you're going to hear from people. So what? You just keep going. Um, and that's, <laughs> I've tried to relay that to my kids. They're like, someone so-and-so said this to me. Okay. Well, that doesn't have to do with it. That doesn't mean anything. You just get up and you, you try harder. You do more, whatever you can. But, with the Spirit of God, we can overcome. We have his power, we can show his love, and we can do it with a clear and unpanicked mind. Now, Paul wrote this, these things to Timothy because boldness matters. Timothy needed to be bold. He wanted to make sure he could fulfill God's purpose. And we need to make sure that we don't give up and that we also fulfill the purpose God has for us because he gives us these gifts so that we can touch the people of this world. And fear and timidity can keep us from using the gifts that God gives. Now, verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. <coughs> so what's the next step? Paul has just told Timothy about the spirit of power, love and a sound mind, and the courage he's supposed to have. And those things are the birthright of every person who considers himself a believer. And he told Timothy this so he could guide his thinking. These things should guide our thinking, how we want to, how we live our life. Your thinking determines how you live. 
Now, the first thing he says is, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And for us today, especially in the Western world that we live, it's for us to be ashamed of the gospel is really just kind of enduring some hecklers for the most part. We don't have to really endure anything. But back then, it wasn't as easy to follow someone who was supposedly crucified and rose again. Now, again, we have something that I'm not trying to, let's see, more of a sanitized Jesus is the picture that we're given sometimes. It looks a lot safer. But what we don't realize is back then, they saw people crucified every day. So they were used to seeing the blood on the crosses. The road to some cities, many cities, were lined with the crosses of criminals. So the people who were traveling, they saw all these things. So when they said Jesus was crucified and rose again, they said, you mean somebody who was dead and bleeding on a cross rose from the dead and that's who you're following? That was incredulous. And I think the closest movie we get to even seeing what that possibly looked like is probably The Passion. I've never seen anything closer. And even that, I think, is tamed by what, how it really was. But again, we were, we're very desensitized to it. I mean, we, we know what crosses are, but the crosses we see are shiny pieces of jewelry, which are not wrong to wear. But I think it's a little bit harder for us to understand. But we, regardless of the heckling or whatever we get from it, insults we get from it, we need to not be ashamed of it. <clears throat> Another thing that was strange that Paul didn't want Timothy to be afraid of was, was Jesus' teaching. Now, Jesus taught, if you want to be great, you be the servant of all. Jesus taught to be like a child in faith. Jesus taught to serve like a slave. Jesus taught that instead of trying to be first, don't be afraid to be last and put others ahead of you. And this is things that, again, just like today, people go, why would you do that? Back then, it was the same way. Why would you do that? Because that's God's way. And he didn't want Timothy to, again, be ashamed of those things. And again, in verse 8, it says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Timothy has been with Paul most of his ministry. He's seen exactly what Paul has suffered. And Paul says, go ahead and join me in this. And I just think that's fascinating. Just because he's seen it all. And if anything, someone who's not a true believer would probably shrink from that. As we'll see later on, people did. But obviously not Timothy. I believe uh, church history says Timothy, or tradition says Timothy was also martyred. But... He didn't shrink from it, and we need to not be ashamed. We need to take the mindset that we're given in verse 7 and apply it to how we live and not be ashamed of what God has done for us. Verse 9 and 10. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death 
and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It says, who has saved us and called us? We'll start with that. It says in Romans that we didn't seek after God. He sought after us. It says there is none who seeks after God. So what God does is he comes and he knocks on the door of the heart and he waits for us to respond. He sought us first. So whenever someone senses it, it's their job to respond. And again, it says it's not according to our works, but according to his purpose. And this explains why God has called us. He didn't save us because we were anything special. We're all clay and dirt. In fact, when it says he chose Israel, he says, I didn't choose you because you were better than any other nation. You're actually more stubborn than all the other nations combined. He says, I chose you because I have a purpose for you. And it's the same reason he chooses all of us. Again, this goes back to the purpose that he gives us. And you're going to find this a lot in this book. Then it says... According to the grace which is given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Just as a couple, when they know they're pregnant and they plan for the baby, and a lot of times there's this stage during pregnancy where the woman is nesting and she's creating her little nursery and everything like that. Before time began, God was planning. I think this is a weird analogy, but it's almost like God was nesting. He was getting ready for us. He was planning. He knew exactly what was going to happen from eternity. I mean, that's, he's outside of time, and he's thinking of these things. He planned for us the purpose. And then it says, but it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death. I think it's significant that now that we're Christians, we don't have to fear death. Death is always going to be there until Christ comes again and gets rid of it, finally. But death doesn't take anything from a Christian. The one thing it does for a Christian is it graduates us to glory where we get the new body. And then it says, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In the Old Testament, we had glimpses of heaven. We had glimpses in Isaiah 6. We have a couple of glimpses in Ezekiel, and there's other places. But Jesus brought about <clears throat> more knowledge of heaven than anybody else did. We have the book of Revelation and all these other glimpses that he talks about through the New Testament. So everything that was murky in the Old Testament with little snippets here and there becomes a lot more clear. And we're still in the dark on some things. But... He's brought more information than anything else about life after death. And Jesus, of course, because of that, is the most reliable spokesman concerning that, more than anyone who's had a near-death experience. Just my opinion on that real quick. I don't believe in them, and I'll tell you one primary reason. The testimony of most of those witnesses contradicts with what the Bible says about heaven. And the Bible is the supreme authority. And so if their witness contradicts with the witness of the Bible, their witness is wrong. I don't know what they saw, but it wasn't heaven. 
and another motif of those near-death experiences, a lot of people will say, in heaven, everybody's saved. So universalism is the concept of a lot of those. So Jesus is the ultimate authority when it comes to that. Verse 11 and 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So far from being ashamed, Paul was honored, because he knew who he believed. And I think it's important. It's not what you believe as far as, well, it is what you believe. It's not how much you know. It's who you know. And the more you know Christ, the more intimate you become with him, the more you can trust him, the more, like Paul, you go full bore again into what he has for you. And this explains why Paul was so bold in his work. He knew who he believed. He knew he could trust him. He, he, he let, again, he left nothing behind. He, he went full bore. He knew who he committed himself to. Paul gave Jesus his life <clears throat> because he knew Jesus was able to keep it. He knew he couldn't keep his own life. You know, a lot of times we believe that we're in control. You know, the... Uh, What was that thing we read earlier? The, something to think about. Proverbs 16.9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A lot of times we think we're in control of our life and what we're going to do. And the more you live for Christ, the more you get to know him, you realize that it was God in the background guiding you to certain places to do certain things. certain things happen in your life that they look like they're for the negative when really God brings them around to the positive. There were, it's how Jen and I came to this church. We weren't going anywhere. And I was kind of disenfranchised with everybody and decided I was done. But God used that situation that had gone on before to bring us here. So he used that to bring a big blessing to us in the end. Until that day, Paul says, he committed himself until that day. And I've said this before, but I love this reminder. When we live each day, it's always with the expectation of perhaps today. Because perhaps today he should come. And Paul and Timothy lived in such expectation of that day and awareness of that day. That they will, again, a third reason they were able to be so bold. One commentator said, To the degree we commit our life and all that we are and have to Jesus, to that same degree, that day will be precious to us. Verse 13 and 14. <coughs> 
What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. With faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. <coughs> he says, hold fast, or he says, keep as the pattern. And that word suggests that someone's going to try to take things from us, take something from us, and that's the truth, the truth of Christ. And you'll find out later in this book, chapter 3, that there's all sorts of false teachers out there. In fact, Paul warns about them frequently, not just in this book, but who try to take the truth from us. And as this is a pastoral epistle, he wants Timothy to realize that and to hold fast so he can minister. But even if you're not a pastor, you need to hold fast to the truth. Because if we don't, then we can be shifted around by every wave of doctrine that's out there. Verse 15 and 16. I'm sorry, 15. <coughs> you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Most people believe Paul probably had four missionary journeys, and they appear to be all successful. We can see some of two of those journeys in the book of Acts, and there were thousands of converts. He was able to spend years in some cities ministering the gospel. And yet here we are at the end of his career, of a spiritually successfully career, and yet everybody has abandoned him except for a few people. He wasn't praised by the world, obviously, because the world doesn't have anything to do with the spirit. But he wasn't even regarded that much among other Christians. Everybody had abandoned him. And he lists two people specifically here, Phygelus and Hermogenes. I believe that he lists them specifically because they were probably outspoken against him. Uh, they were probably saying things about Paul. We know in, <clears throat> from Second Corinthians that there were even people in Corinth who were saying, we don't need to listen to Paul. You know, he's got good letters, but he's kind of a weakling in real life. He's really small. He can't see. He squints all the time. So they were, you know, he didn't look like much apparently. And yet he was this great spiritual giant. But he rebukes these two to stop their attacks against him, not just because of him, but before the for the gospel's sake. And one person said, it usually happens that deserters from the Christian faith seek to war against the Christian faith by inventing accusations against it. And that appears what these two are doing. Now, these two had their name recorded in God's word as an example of unfaithfulness. Uh, remember my youth pastor said once, it is better to be the example than made the example. And these two were made the example. But in verses 16 and 18, we're going to see the person who was an example. Verse 16 through 18. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. <coughs> because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. 
Onesiphorus was faithful. And he lists a few things that proves his faithfulness. One is he was refreshing. Now, again, Paul knew what his mission was. He knew there was going to be bumps. He knew there was going to be trials and pitfalls, all these things. Yet that doesn't mean that someone doesn't need encouragement. Everybody needs encouragement no matter what ministry they're in. Because some, a lot of times ministry is unthankful. Just because that's just the way it is. But Onesiphorus made sure that he was refreshing to Paul. Now, how he did that specifically, I don't know how he did it. He was probably encouraging like Barnabas was with words. He may have brought things to Paul that Paul needed. A lot of times, uh, because Paul was blind, he may have needed people to write letters for him. I know he needed people to write letters for him. He may have had people read to him. There are many things that he could have done to refresh him, but Onesiphorus refreshed him in that way. It also says he was not ashamed of my chain. So he didn't care what Paul was in prison for. Even though Christianity was very unpopular at the time because they were being persecuted, this is the start of the persecution when Paul was executed, he didn't care. In fact, it says, he sought me out very diligently and found me. Now, there was more than one prison in Rome which means he would have had to have walked all over the city just to find where Paul was. Now, I've never been to Rome, but apparently you can go to a cell, which is like five by five, and it's sunken down into the floor. Have you been there, Mom? Oh, when I was two, okay. Where they say Paul was, it was one of the dungeons. Now, I don't know if that was the place, but Onesiphorus had to walk around this city and look for Paul. He was faithful. He wasn't ashamed of his chain, and he refreshed Paul. And Paul prays for him and says, I, sh I want him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And those three things can almost sum up this chapter perfectly. Because Paul wanted Timothy to be refreshing to those around him. And we need to be refreshing to those people too, to other people. We need to not be ashamed of not just Christianity, but the chains of, that can be associated with that. And we want to be zealous for other people. We want to be servants. Onesiphorus means help bringer. And that's the example that we want to have. Now, let me go ahead and I'm going to close in prayer, actually. And we're not going to have a closing song. So after I pray, have a blessed week. Lord, I do thank you for your word. Lord, there's so many things that we can learn from it. And just as Timothy was t timid at times, so can we be. And Lord, as our country seems to be moving to a post-Christian era, Lord, may we continue to stand strong in the truth. May we be bold as you instructed Timothy to be. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we would always take advantage of it. And Lord, I pray that everybody would do their homework and look up those 25 verses. And just be encouraged again, encouraged again through your word. In Jesus' name.
Amen.